1 Timothy chapter number 1. We're going to put back in in verses 3 through 11. Let me just remind you of the divisions of the chapter. We've noted a well-established bond connecting brethren, verses 1 and 2. Paul the aged, Timothy the younger. 30 years or about it would separate the two. There's an obvious work in which Timothy is to engage, verses 3 through 11. That's where we are. Timothy's work is here set before him. Verses 12 to 17, the Lord willing, we'll look there next Wednesday. There's a warfare in which Timothy was to engage. Look with me, if you will. Let's read verses 3 through 11 tonight. We'll review and get down to where we left off last time, and we trust that we will finish this section tonight. As a matter of fact, I was working at my desk today, and I happened to think about this section. This is our seventh look at 1 Timothy. I would have thought in my mind there would have been two evenings where we'd have done a little groundwork, and they, there was, to the book itself. And then by the time I would have got to message seven, or our study, number seven, we would have been in the first division of chapter two. Chapter two divides into two sections. But it's been good for me to look into these verses. I'm going to tell you something else as a pastor. It's been good to hear some of you men pray at times for God's grace, mercy, and peace. To be upon your loved ones, to be upon our church. I appreciate you catching that when we spoke of Paul's desire in his prayer for Timothy. It's a blessing. Even Sunday evening, I heard one of our men in a fellowship pray along that line. It was such a blessing, a joy to hear that. Let's read the verses, verses 3 through 11. Paul writing to Timothy in this pastoral epistle He writes, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. You remember as Paul goes on to Macedonia, he leaves Timothy behind, to preach to, um, preach sound doctrine to the believers in the church at Ephesus. Now we've mentioned how that there's a storm to be weathered, right? Verses 3 and 4, the place of the storm is Ephesus, verse number 3. 
The particulars of the storm are found at the end of verse 3 and end through verse number 4. There were errors being propagated in the church body. Verse number 3, you note the phrases, or the phrase, it's a long phrase, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Among the errors propagated in the church body is that of false teaching, false doctrine. Verse number 4, fables and endless genealogies. Fables are inventions and assumptions, imaginations of the mind told to be the truth. Endless genealogies, endless. It would have been an, an endless thing that they were dealing with. The effects that that brings about on the church body, Paul writes at the end of verse number 4, you notice it with me, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Questions. God's not the author of the question mark. That'd be Satan's business. Um, that comes under Satan's set of business. For God is not the author of confusion. Satan is. You mark that down. False doctrine would come under his head of business, not God's head of business. False doctrine, fables, endless genealogies, according to verse number four, minister questions. Uh, uh, confusion, if you will, as we stated. He goes on here in verse number four. He says, rather than... Or as opposed to, he says, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. And so godly edifying is what we're shooting for, right? That's why we've opened our Bibles tonight and not the Daily Journal or the Sports Illustrated or uh, some other magazine. We've opened the Bible. We're Bible believers. We've come to learn something and become more familiar with our Bibles. So he says there's a storm to be weathered. Number two, there's a flock to be fed. Verses 5 through 10, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. You remember we said there's a goal to be remembered. It's right there at the beginning of verse number 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity. You remember he started the commandment, verse 3. Remember we spoke of the etymology of the word that's translated charge in verse 3. It's also translated now commandment, verse number 5. Watch it. Verse 3, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge, thou mightest command some that they teach no other doctrine. Don't teach strange doctrine. Verse number 5, watch the word commandment. We'll use the word charge. And from verse number 3 into verse 5, does no harm to the text. Now, the end of the charge. He started speaking of that in verse 3. Now, the end of the charge, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So, the goal is clearly stated here. Timothy's objective is, now, the end of the commandment, the goal of it all, the purpose Timothy, of your preaching sound doctrine is those who will receive it 
We want to see them, we want to see the agape of God manifested in and through their lives. And he gives three areas of the life that should be affected. Go back, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. This is what we commonly know to be the love chapter or the agape chapter. Um, it's, it's the love of God. It's the kind of love that sets its affection never to be removed. Um, we preachers have all stated it for years and years. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can't do anything to make God love you more. Nor can you do anything to make God or cause God to love you any less. He is determined for love's sake to love you through Christ. What a blessing that is. And so this agape is to be manifested in and through all of our lives. As a matter of fact, if God's working in my life, um, this will be paramount. It will be seen. It's kind of like the little fellow that uh, his pastor was preaching on God being so big. And so he said to his parents, when they got home, said, you know, if God is really that big, looks like you ought to be sticking out of you somewhere. And if God's working in our lives, if, the, if he's working on the inside, it's going to show up on the outside. The agape love of God. Watch this. Now, you remember we were going, we preached through 1 Corinthians 13 back when COVID was so hot in the area. And if you'll remember, there's the phrase used often by Paul, though I. He says, though I, several times. And you can say it like this in modern day vernacular, if I. And so I'll interchange that at times just so you get the effect of it. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 13, if I, or though I, Speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, have not the love of God. I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I, or if I, have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not the love of God, have not the agape of God, have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I, or if I, give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity, the love of God, agape, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Still speaking of the agape, the love of God, charity. Verse 7, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Then he says in the first phrase of verse number uh, 8, charity never faileth. It never faileth. Aren't you glad that the love of God does not fail? Does not fail. And so back to our text here in chapter number one, verse number five, when Paul is writing about Timothy's objective, and it's clearly stated here, um, the end of it all, Timothy, the end of the commandment is charity. That's our goal. That's our aim. Um, if I were on a weight loss uh, program of some sort and on an exercise regimen, 
Um, there may be some fit guy um, in a magazine, and there he is advertising supplements or whatever it would be. And so a man, his goal would be to exercise himself into that type of shape, discipline himself perhaps into that type of shape. What Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, the purpose of your preaching is so that people look like 1 Corinthians 13. So that the love of Christ, the love of God may be manifested through their lives. So there's a goal to be remembered. This goal is for charity in the people of God's life. The goal is clearly manifested, he says in verse number 5, out of a pure heart. Verse number 5, and of a good conscience. Verse number 5, and a faith unfeigned, that means unmixed. There's a settledness about the people of God who are sure of Christ and sure of his word. A goal to be remembered, verses 6 and 7, enemies to be resisted. And this is where we got to last week. Enemies to be resisted. Now, there's a brief description given of the enemies in verse number 6, where he writes, from which some, you remember when we were laying groundwork for the book of 1 Timothy, the word some, except for one time, has a negative emphasis to it. The some were people who were spreading false uh, doctrine. And so there's nothing, there's nothing good other than one time in this emphasis here, uh, in the book of First Timothy, that is. Look at verse 6. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Vain jangling, idle talk. Um, from which some, having swerved, to miss the mark. You've been going down the highway before and a deer dart out or a dog dart out or something dart out and you swerve. You intentionally, you swerve. Uh, to miss that animal, doing damage to your car, to yourself. This word swerved, one wordsmith says that it comes from a medical term which means to twist out of joint or to remove from its true place. He says they've turned aside under vain jangling also. Now, there's the desired preeminence of the enemies. He said they desire, you see that in verse 7, desiring to be teachers. He's going to go on and say they don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're teaching or talking about. He says, understanding, verse number 7, understanding neither what they say, that's ignorance, nor whereof they affirm. They affirm. where they affirm, that's arrogance. And usually those are first cousins to one another. Ignorance and arrogance. Now, there's the error to be refuted. Look at verses 8 through 10. The error to be, a goal to be remembered, the enemies that are to be resisted, and the error to be refuted. The error to be refuted. There's no doubt the false teachers were teaching salvation through works and they were using the law to do so. Number one, we can't keep the law. Number two, the law's never saved anybody. Number three, your goods never outweighed your bad. Even at your best, it's counted as filthy rags in the sight of God. Look at verses 8 through 10. He writes, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, 
for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, the error to be refuted. Now, it's interesting to me that these they would have been what we call legalists. They would have taken the law and tried to twist your arm up behind your back and force you to do right. Let me tell you something. A man's walking with God, you don't have to force him to do anything. You don't have to embarrass him. If a man's wanting to walk with God, he'll walk with God. If a woman wants to walk with God, she'll walk with God. She may walk at a different pace than you do. He may get to the goal later than you do, but... If they're listening and paying attention to the Word of God and praying, what's your prayer life look like tonight? The Bible says of two men specifically that they walked with God. That's Enoch in Genesis 5 and Noah in Genesis chapter number 6. They walked with God. And we know other men walked with God, right? When you think about uh, Adam, um, God met with he and Eve in the cool of the day. He knew what it was to walk with God. Sometimes we talk about being created in the image of God. We are, but now that image is marred now. It's a marred image. Because sin has entered in. To walk with God. That's the goal, that we do so. But you don't have to use the law to do it. You don't have to use the law to do it. I've said this before, um, when a young man first surrenders to preach, and he comes out of the gate um, kicking at everything and spitting at everything and mean as a junkyard dog, I, that doesn't bother me. His zeal, his passion, that doesn't bother me. But it bothers me if he's doing that 30 years down the road. You ought to have a little bit more grace about him now. You ought to learn a little something. But I used to think the thou shouts and the thou shalt nots, that was all I was supposed to preach. There's once upon a time. I was influenced in that direction. Look at the character of the law. This is interesting that Paul would say this. But we know that the law is good. And there were those that were using it wrongfully. They're wrong. The law's not wrong. He said, but we know that the law is good. That's the character of the law. That's what he says. Our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He said, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We'll say something about the connection of the law and the gospel here uh, shortly. But Paul here is not criticizing the law. Sometimes, uh, you know I speak with preachers daily, and uh, it'd be very few days in my life I don't speak with preachers it's a happy day for me when a preacher calls and he's been involved in somewhat of a legalistic mindset. He sees through it. And I want to tell you something. Part of the problem with the day in which we live in preaching era is nearly all of us are out there on the Internet now. And if you say something that's not right, somebody's going to call you out on it. Or they're going to ask for a chapter and a verse to back up something that may be false that is being uttered. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm not going to sit under that type of stuff. 
I'm just not. I don't need to be beat up every time I come to church. I get beat up whether I'm in church or not in church. That's my life. That's the life of a preacher and a pastor. I want somebody to take the word and tell me what it says. Now, you can skin my hide if you want to, but give me some hope before we get out of here. Point me to Christ. Point me to God. Point me back to the Bible and its principles before I get out of here. So the character of the law, he writes about it. He says, but the law, but we know that the law is good. So it's not the character of the law that's bad. What is bad is when somebody takes the law and uses it in such a fashion that it's not designed to be used for. Balance is a good word. When it comes to the things of God, when it comes to doctrine, balance is a good word. The new and the old complement each other. One doctrine will complement the other. Genesis will help you to understand Exodus, will help you to understand Jude will help you to understand Revelation, everything in between. It all complements a balance. Concerning the law, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7, verse number 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. So there's the character of the law. Now notice Paul's caution. He gives a word of caution about the law. He writes in verse number 8, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. If a man uses the law for its intended purpose, it's right, it's good, it's sound. We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. The misuse or the misapplication of the law will bring about strife and grief. As a matter of fact, think about it just a second. Um, if, If all I did was fight on Sunday morning and Wednesday, if that's all I did was fight, you know what kind of spirit we'd have in our church? We'd have a fighting, striving church if that's all it did. If I used the law and turned to the Ten Commandments or turned to other principles in the Bible and beat you over the head with it all the time, we would have a fighting, um, disgruntled church. I know some places where that's all they do is fight. They don't just fight. Uh, movements of this world, but they fight each other. It's a constant all of the time. And God doesn't have any, there's nothing in that of God. So the misuse of the law brings about grief and strife. He says, we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Um, in Christ's day, you remember, it was the religious folk of his day that brought grief. As a matter of fact, we'll notice it Sunday. You remember when he when he healed the impotent man. We don't know the age of the man. We just know he had been um, a cripple for 38 years. The Bible doesn't say he was a man 38 years of age. uh, But we know he had been crippled for some 38 years. So we really don't know the age of the man. But when the Lord healed him, he told him, he said, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. He did it. He stood, rolled his bed up, tucked it under his arm, threw it on his shoulder, whatever he did, and he walked. And you remember what the Jews, the religious Jews, the, the, the Jewish leaders, you remember what their problem with him was. Here he is carrying his burden. They had attached 39 regulations to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And one of those 39 
attachments was, number 39, you're not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to pick up anything up and carry it on the Sabbath. God didn't say that. They said that. You remember what Jesus said, and I'll paraphrase it, and we'll get to it Sunday. But he said, I'm going to blow you fellas' mind. He said, God rested on the Sabbath. He didn't stop working. He just rested from creation. This is what he said. He said, my father worketh hitherto, and I do too. We both are at work every day of the week. If he took his hands off of everything on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, it all would have went to smithereens. By him, all things consist, the book of Colossians says. That means by him, all things are held together. Scientists tell us the molecular buildup of everything, the molecular structure of everything in this universe says that everything ought to be at odds and going in different directions and would soon disintegrate. You know why it doesn't? It's because the Father worketh hitherto and the Son does too. So it was the religious Jews, the caution about the law, the character of the law. And then there's the constraint of the law, verses 9 and 10. Notice with me in verse number 9, first couple of phrases, the law is not made for the lawkeeper. Look at verse number 9. Knowing this, being assured of this, knowing this, he says, that the law is not made for a righteous man. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. The law holds no terror for a righteous man. Holds no, no fear for righteous men. Have you ever been traveling with your child when they were little or a grandbaby? And there's a roadblock. They're checking licenses and uh, checking for insurance, car tags, whatever. And for a moment or two, the little fellow is filled with fright. Doesn't bother you. Um, you have proof of your insurance. Your license are... Um, not expired, neither is your car tag, so it holds no fear for you. You're a law-abiding citizen. And so you calm the child by saying, look, there's nothing to fear. We've done nothing wrong. The Bible says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. The law is not made for the law keepers, what he's saying. Look at verse number 9 and 10. Then he says the law is made for the law breaker. Watch the list. Watch the catalog. He said it's made for the lawless, those defiant of the law. The disobedient, those set on rebellion, insubordinate to authority. He said it's made for the ungodly, those irreverent toward God and the things of God. He said it's made for sinners, speaks of depravity and selfishness that a man possesses. He said it's made for the unholy. Again, this speaks of irreverence. Unholy. Disrespecting the things of God. He says for profane. These people have no time for God. There's some people you can mention the gospel to, or you can mention a church to, or you can mention the Bible to, and they'll do everything but spit. I was visiting a dear lady in the hospital. When I was at Thrasher, I was visiting the lady. Um, <clears throat> her daughter had married a Muslim fellow. And so I told the lady before I left, I said, I, uh, I'm going to go, but I'd like to pray with you if I can. She said, sure. 
And I didn't have my eyes open, of course, but I did have my ears open. I prayed. And then when I said, in Jesus' name, the Muslim fellow spit on the floor. He spit on the floor. Profane. Spit on the floor. He says, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, the idea is smiting the father to death. Smiting the mother to death. Clubbing their father to death. Beating their mother to death. And you would think nothing like that would happen, wouldn't you? It happens regularly. He goes on and says, for manslayers. What's he speaking of? He just said murders of fathers and murders of mothers. Why include manslayers? It's those who have no regard for human life. No regard for human life. And we all know, we've all read of stories where there are men or women who have no regard uh, some of us stood stood around here. Uh, the gentleman that was shot, uh, the convenience store closest to Cooper Tire. It's been about a year or so ago. Uh, some of us saw. We were talking about it. Uh, maybe it was a Wednesday evening after service. Um, shot a helpless man. All he's doing was earning a living, probably earning, um, probably wasn't drawing, but minimum wage. He's in there doing his job, and he got shot by a man who had total disregard for his life, his family, where he'd come from, where he was headed. That's a manslayer is what that is. Someone with no regard for human life. For whoremongers, this is seen in many facets. Timothy is pastoring now in Ephesus, remember, verse 3. In Ephesus was, um, there were many trades, occupations, many idolatrous practices. The most pronounced was that of the worship of the Greek goddess Diana. It was a lewd, licentious, and sensual um, practice of worship. There were male prostitutes and there were female prostitutes. They called it a part of their worship and idolatrous practices. He said, the law is made for them, Timothy. You've got a pastor among people that live like that. As y'all gather, there'll be people on the outside that are engaged in such activity. The Bible says, then, for them that defile themselves with mankind. That's sodomy is what that is. Men with men and women with women. It's not the first generation to see such. Matter of fact, I don't even like mentioning it. You probably don't like hearing it, but here it is in the Bible. Some years ago, it's been 20 years or better, there was a uh, gay pride parade in one of the major cities. The Southern Baptist Convention mailed uh, the video of some of that parade. It was sickening. Sodomy, the practice of sodomy. Men with men, women with women. There's no place for that. 
adultery is an act against God, against a man's wife or wife's husband, against their own bodies. Sodomy is a perversion of all of it. It's a perversion of all of it. For men stealers, that's kidnapping. Um, For men stealers, enslavement. Um... We hear it called today a lot of times human trafficking. Amanda and I and a preacher friend and his wife was preaching at Poolville Baptist Church in Union County fall before last. The investigator with the Highway Patrol of Mississippi invited us to supper before Tuesday night's service. We talked about a number of things. I was not going to wear the host out with questions. If I am in someone's presence and want to learn more, I do ask questions. But uh, the investigator brought it up that um, they had just arrested eight between um, Lafayette, Union, and Pontotoc counties, child uh, trafficking, human trafficking. I said, how does that work? Let's not hear about it. And it's um, men and women who have children on crack or crystal meth or some strong drug trading their child out. Sickening, isn't it? As a matter of fact, the investigator went on. I had Anna call the investigator about what goes on around malls and things like that. They're sophisticated, more so now with child trafficking than they've ever been according to the investigator. Sad, isn't it? Again, no regard for human life. He said, Timothy, that's who the law is made for, to restrain them, that they violate it, prosecute them. And they should be prosecuted. He says, for liars, dishonest people. Dishonest people. What's the old saying here in the South? Some folk rather climb a tree and tell a lie than stand on the ground, look you in the eye, and tell the truth. I went to school with an old boy. If you killed a deer, he killed a bigger one. Had a 390. The first truck I bought had a 390, a Ford engine in it. And forgive me for just a second. I've lived um, the life of a man too, but at the top end, the thing would run. He had a little old GMC with a 305 put in it, and he thought that thing would fly in the air. I mean, it didn't matter what you told, he had a bigger bear story. You didn't want to tell anything around him. Liars for perjured persons. That's people who would do malice through corruptible uh, testimony. And I would imagine that happens quite often. Then he says, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, and again, where do we get our sound doctrine from? We get it from the word, right? Anything contrary to this, he said the law is meant to push that back, to restrain that. Anything that's contrary to sound, healthy doctrine. All right, there's a storm to be weathered. 
Why? Because there's false doctrine there. There's a flock to be fed. Teach them that the law is good and what it's there for. And there's a gospel to be preached. Look at verse number 11 with me. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, he's mentioned the law, leads us out of the law, the proper use of it, uh, into the gospel. Now, he's going to mention the gospel again in verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel, friend. That's the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Let me say something about the law and the gospel. The work of the law is preparatory for the gospel. I said this recently. I don't remember if it was a Sunday. I've said it some in the fall out preaching about. I don't know that Brother Charlie even thought about much what he was doing, but a lot of times he'd run me by Mount Sinai. And I'd be reminded of how needy I was of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the preparatory work of the law to show us that we are sinners, that we have violated the commandments of God, that we have offended a holy God, that we've trespassed, we've missed the mark. Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25, listen to this. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law was given to show us not only our sin, but the sinfulness of our sin. James would write in James 2.10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all of it. He's guilty of all. All of it. What was given on side, we're guilty of all of it, all ten of it. It's not just the sins of the Jews that put Christ on the cross, or the sins of the Roman government. Not just the sins of those that spat upon him, beat him about his head, and administered the soldier that would administer the beating of the cat of the nine tails. But everybody in this building tonight, we put him there. We put him there, the sinfulness of our sin. The law was never given as a means of salvation. Brother Larry Winkler, I've quoted him before on this. He speaks of the four black nuns in Romans 3, not N-U-N-S, connected with a, um, a Catholic uh, connections, but N-O-N-E. Listen to them. They're found in three verses Romans 3, verse 10, 11, and 12. Listen to them. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. The law is not given to restrain the righteous man. But for, we were given that. And the law is also given to show us our sin and sinfulness. The work of the law is preparatory for the gospel, and it works in harmony with the gospel, does it not? There's no contradictions between the two. Not on your life. The law has been written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and we are saved. What the law requires, the gospel does too. And even more, 
Jesus said, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Repeatedly he said that in Matthew 5 and in Matthew chapter number 6. The gospel doesn't tolerate any sin any more than the law does. Again, Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Look back at verse 11. I'll make three statements. I'm done. There's a storm to be weathered. There's a flock to be fed. There's a gospel to be preached. Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Did you see the splendor of the gospel there? Do you see what the Bible said? According to the glorious gospel. These fellows that preach in backwoods churches and they take the gospel with them when they go to church. These people that fly internationally to go preach the gospel on the mission fields. Whoever they be. What precious cargo. They bear with them when they go. The glorious gospel. The gospel of the glory of God. Notice the source of it. According to the glorious gospel. Watch this. Of the blessed God. You know what the word blessed means? It speaks of a settledness. It speaks of a tranquility. It speaks of being supremely blessed. And it literally means to be happy. Or happy, happy, or you could express express it, oh, how happy. Now watch it again. According to the glorious gospel of our happy God. Our happy, happy God. Listen to what Guy King said about that, and I'll give you our last thought. The glorious gospel, this gospel of glory, comes indeed out of an environment of joy, out of the happy heart of God. God is delighted to save sinners. We may get happy about it and shout about it, but I'm convinced he's more happy about the whole situation than anybody is. He sent his son out for that purpose into this world. The splendor of the gospel, the source of it, and then the stewardship of the gospel. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, watch this, which was committed to my trust. Thank God for the gospel. Let's stand with this miss in prayer. Thank you for your... Attention, and thank you for being here tonight.